Welcome to the Beyond Ordinary Woman podcast. Every two weeks, we'll post a podcast version of one of our free training videos, but you can access them now at beyondordinarywomen.org. This episode or series includes downloadable information on our website, beyondordinarywomen.org. Go to resources on the main menu and click on podcast slash video extras. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, welcome to Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries. I'm Kay Daigle, and we are thrilled to have you with us. And we are especially excited to have our guest, Nika Spalding. Nika is the resident theologian at St. Jude Oak Cliff in the Dallas area. And she has done a number of videos for us, and we're always delighted to have her and her expertise. How are you today, Nika? Ah, I'm doing great. We're recording this on Ash Wednesday, so it's a fun day in the liturgical calendar. So excited to be here with you. And and we're glad to have you. And I love I love uh, remembering Ash Wednesday myself. I've already been to a service, so that was good. Good. What we're going to do today is talk about the Pharisees, but Nika has come up with a better title for this because we knew if we just said it was the Pharisees, nobody would be interested because we all think we know all about the Pharisees. So what is the title of this podcast video episode, Nika? I love it. I wanted something that would maybe get, make you go, huh, I don't, is that right? So we're calling this Pharisees Make Good Neighbors. And I think I'm going to be able to prove that. Um, and I hope you'll stick with us in this conversation. But if you are new to any study of the Pharisees, a lot of what we're going to say today might challenge maybe some of your preconceived notions. So Pharisees make good neighbors, and I hope you'll stick with us in this conversation. So why, why do we need this conversation? Why do we need to talk about the Pharisees? Yeah, I think that's a, the big question. I think if if we're going to start this conversation anywhere, it has to be with the misconceptions about Pharisees. You know, when you hear the word Pharisee, sometimes it's just a fill-in that we use today when we're trying to insult somebody today. Like we're not even thinking of the historical people. You know, we think of, oh, that person, they're such a Pharisee. And what we mean by that is either somebody who's really legalistic, they're a rule follower, they put rules ahead of people. um, Or we think of like hypocrisy where we think of, oh, these people say one thing, but they do something completely different. Um, in my studies, there's a book by Amy Jill Levine and um, a guy last name Severs, Joseph Severs. And in it, they have a whole chapter on misconceptions about Pharisees. And there's this drink in Germany called De Pharisio, or however they say it. And it's called the Pharisee. What it is, is a coffee cup, but there's rum inside instead of coffee. And the point is they're trying to say like, hey, just like the Pharisees pretended to be one thing and they're actually something else, this drink pretends to be coffee, but it's actually full of alcohol. And, you know, that was just one example of when you hear Pharisee, most of the time, if you've grown up in the Western American church, probably what you think of is a really negative stereotype of this group of people from ancient Israel. So with that in mind as to why we need to learn more about them is because we've got some misconceptions and some wrong ideas about them. Who should be listening to this? Who's Mm going to help? Yeah, I think, you know, this conversation for me is really two levels. Okay. So I think one, everyone, I think everyone should be interested in all things theology and you should listen. However, I think most of the misconceptions we have about Pharisees have probably been unknowingly continue to be brought forward by teachers 
Bible study leaders, um, those who communicate God's word. And so this is really my appeal to people like me. I'll be the, like, hear me. Okay. I have taught the Bible for 10 years professionally. And I sometimes cringe when I think about some of the sermons or some of the, the Bible study lessons I've given, or some of the talks I've given where I've done the same thing where I've clumped the Pharisees in a one big boogeyman category. They're the enemy. They're bad. Everything's bad. And I wish I could undo that. And so really I'm, this is an encouragement for anybody who's writing curriculum, teaching young people, teaching women, teaching their church, anyone who's going to be communicating God's word, especially if you're going to be teaching the gospels anytime soon, um, or the book of acts, you're going to come across these Pharisees. And I, 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 my hope is always to be more faithful teacher. I'm sure that's the same for our listeners. And so I think anybody who's going to be teaching God's word really should take a second look at what the better scholarship is saying about Pharisees today. I do too. And you know, that's just a good reminder for teachers. Certainly. I've been teaching 40 years. If you want to know how many things that you would look back on and say, I can't believe I said that, wait till you've been teaching for 40 years because it just grows and grows and grows the number of things that you just are horrified that you Mm. ever said. And so this whole Pharisee thing, I had read a chapter about the Pharisees and, and that had already had me thinking about it. And then you and I talked about it, but I was horrified when I read that chapter. So I do think that it's a good reminder, though, for anyone teaching the Bible to keep up with current scholarship and not just rely on old commentaries. Yeah. Because new evidence comes to light as they find more evidence, you know, in antiquity about these things and or somebody digs through what's there and and realizes that there's a problem. Yeah, it's just a good reminder. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think two things have happened in scholarship in the last really 60, 70 years that have changed our understanding of a lot of uh, first century Judaism. And one is we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, I mean, huge archaeological find in 1948. We're continuing to study those and learn so much about the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And the second thing was, is uh, universities stopped having Christianity departments and started having world religions departments. And you can say that's a good or a bad thing. But one of the beautiful things that happened is Jewish scholars and Christian scholars finally started dialoguing. And I think a really important way. And so when you get Jewish scholars who, who spend their lives studying, you know, the Mishnah, the Talmud, you know, so much Jewish writing, and they're going, hey, I don't think you guys quite are articulating about the Pharisees in a way that's fair to them. And you have really humble Christian scholars willing to listen and they're looking at the material together. I think out of that movement has borne some really rich stuff. And so I couldn't agree more that the better scholarship coming out today uh, is questioning stuff that, you know, we kind of have just said, like, everybody goes, oh, well, you know, the fairs, everyone knows, everybody knows they were unpopular and harmful to the people. And I'm like, well, maybe we don't all know that anymore. So I think you're exactly right, Kay. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, what do we know now? You talked about some of these misconceptions, the way we tend to throw out the, the word Pharisee and what we mean by it, but what should we know? What can you tell us about that? Yeah. So first thing, Pharisee is not just a catch-all term for the people you don't like in church or the people you don't like on the church down the road. It's an actual group of people. And so Ed Sanders wrote this massive book all about Judaism from basically 90 BCE to 60 CE, kind of this big transitional period, or really it was like 150 BCE and all that. 
And when he looked at that, he realized, you know, in first century Judaism, which is really the life in place of Jesus and Paul and the writings of the New Testament, the Pharisees are one group of of Jewish people, but there were many groups of Jewish people that we see even represented in the scriptures. And so the Pharisees as a group probably got their start during the Maccabean revolt. So if you think back to the history, the, the people of Israel were given the land. God says, Hey, walk with me all the days of your life. It'll go well with you. And the people are like, no, thanks. And so if you remember the people get carried off into exile and then eventually they get to return to the land. But during all that time, they are constantly under foreign powers. And this is true. Even in first century Jerusalem, it's, it's Rome. Rome is the one in charge. Well, in the mid second century BCE, you have this revolt by the Maccabeans and we have all these books on the Maccabees. And it's during that that time that the Pharisees as a group really pop up and say, hey, we don't want to live like the Romans live. You know, we call it Hellenization, this idea of Greek way of life, this Roman way of life. We want to live faithfully as God has called us to live, but we're in this country that used to belong to us, and now we're under Greek and Roman rule. How do we remain faithful? And so this group of Pharisees really was born out of reform to say, we don't want to look like our neighbors. We want to continue to be faithful to Yahweh. We want to continue to be faithful to our Jewish traditions. And so all of a sudden you've got all these imperial powers and pressure and you've got one group, the Pharisees, who want to return to the ancient ways. You have a group who are full of the aristocrats, the wealthy, those in power, those become the Sadducees. And so you've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees. If you've read your Bible, you've seen these groups. The Sadducees have real power. <laughs> They're the who's who in Jerusalem at the time. Um, and then you've got a group, the Essenes, who are like, you know what? We don't want anything to do with Rome. Forget those guys. We're not going to even try and live with them. And they go off to the Dead Sea and form their own exclusive community. Um, and then you have the Zealots who are like, not only do we do we dislike Rome, we want to try and overthrow them, which is kind of bananas because it's Rome. But you also have the Zealots. And if you pay attention to your scriptures, you know Simon the Zealot becomes a disciple of Jesus. And so you have... It's just like America today. If you ask somebody, what does it mean to be a faithful American? You're going to get a lot of different answers as to what that means. What does it mean to be a good American? The same was true in the first century. What does it mean to be a faithful Jewish follower? You're going to have the Pharisee way of life, the Sadducean way of life, the Essenes, the Zealots, and everything in between. But the Pharisees, interestingly enough, we always think of them as, or we're taught often that they were staunch legalists, really difficult. They they put a burden on the people that was impossible to follow. And that's actually not the, the truth. They're almost the exact opposite. The better research we have coming out is the Pharisees wanted to help the average Jewish person remain faithful to the Torah. So they would find interpretations of the Torah. They're always called legalistic because they add to the law. But what we don't realize is they're not adding to make it difficult. They're adding to make it followable. So, for example, you know, it says, okay, if a woman commits adultery, let's stone her. And they're like, well, maybe she can pay a fine. Like, maybe. And so we have all this evidence where they say, okay, yeah, the Bible says, you know, don't work on the Sabbath. But if your goat falls in the ditch and you need to get them out and it's not, you know, they sort of found these ways to say, hey, let's make this to where we can be faithful. Um, and what's funny is actually the Essenes. The Essenes are like the hardcore they're the fundamentalist Jewish people. They're like, no way. We're not going to live any other way. And they call the Pharisees seeker of smooth things. And what they mean by that is they smooth out the Torah. They make it easier to follow. So it's funny that we think of the Pharisees as like impossibly difficult. 
and the Essenes think of the Pharisees as like these progressives that are way too easy on the common populace, which I think is very funny that there's in, nothing's changed in 2000 years, just like there was infighting in religion. Then we have infighting in religion now, but that's who the Pharisees are. By the time of Jesus, they don't have a lot of formal power. It's really informal power. They have a lot of sway over common Judaism. They are a very popular group. Um, the, the common Jew would love the interpretations of the Pharisees. They're making it to where they can remain faithful to Yahweh, but still live their lives because they recognize, you know, life out on a farm means you're going to touch unclean things. And so when the Pharisees say, hey, that's just part of life, here's what you can do. You can bathe in the mikvah, which would be a bathing place, and you'll be fine. You're good to go. You know, you know, and sort of, and they made it easier out of a desire to be faithful. And I think that's often misunderstood. So really, their desires would be the same as ours. Yeah. We want to be faithful to the Lord. We want to live in a way that pleases him. And so we we are like the Pharisees in that, but that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Scott McKnight, who I, I think is one of the most brilliant scholars that's doing a ton of work on this, he always says that the he likes to say, I think the Pharisees would be modern day evangelicals. And he goes, now, 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 before everybody gets mad at me, let me explain. He's like, evangelicals want to be faithful and they have the laws that they think are more important. We have parts of the Bible that we follow very, very closely. Other parts that we go, eh, if we're all being honest, we all kind of maybe slide around that. And he says like, they, they're very popular. It's, it's kind of when you think of, you know, a lot of people, when they say Christianity, what they really mean is evangelicalism. And they don't realize that there's Catholicism, Anglicanism, evangelical and all of that. And Scott often makes the argument that the Pharisees are a lot like many of us today, faithful men and women who wanted to follow the commands of God. And sometimes they, we all add to it too. And we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that, right? I mean, we read the scriptures that talk about, hey, don't put unholy things in front of you. And we grew up in places where we were told we couldn't watch rated R movies. The Bible doesn't say you can't watch a rated R movie. And I remember when the Passion of Christ came out, that was a real perplexing time for a lot of people because they had a no rated R movie policy. And now there's a movie about Jesus that's rated R. And I remember people being like, wait, are we allowed to go see the Passion of Christ? And so it's just an example of we often also add to the law out of a real desire to be faithful. And I think that's where the Pharisees have to be given a little bit more credit. They're popular among the people. They would have made great neighbors. They would have helped you in a time of crisis. You want a Pharisee living next door to you if you live in first century Israel. Absolutely. And, you know, I can see how it would be really helpful to have little detailed rules. If you were a, if you were a Jew and you, you knew you weren't supposed to do anything on the Sabbath, but what does that mean? What did yeah. what did work on the Sabbath? I can I can understand why I'd like I would like to have a little, you know, a little notebook that I could check through and find out the answer instead of just trying to figure it out for myself. So that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, they have rules about the Sabbath. They say don't work on the Sabbath. And people go, okay, so you can't kindle a fire. And you go, okay. You're living in ancient Israel where there's no central heat in there. Your family wants to eat. Your home is cold. And now your Pharisaic neighbor says, okay, here's what you can do. You can stoke the fire and keep it going. You can go to your neighbor's house and borrow their fire and use that to, you know, like there's this way of saying in, in some ways, not practical because we're trying to skirt the law, but to say no one on Sabbath is trying to break Sabbath. 
but they are trying to stay warm and eat and love their family and serve God and all of these things. And, and this is part of honestly, the way that all of, all of wisdom literature works anyways. You have laws in the scripture that say, don't do this. And you say, but what does that practically mean? And I think we're kidding ourselves as modern Christians if we don't think we do the exact same thing. You know, you have these commands and you've heard it said this, but, you know, so for example, you have hyperbolic language. You know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, we know that doesn't mean literally cut it off, but to what degree do you eradicate sin from your life? Right. If if your phone is causing you to sin, do you throw your phone in the ocean or do you download apps that help you to be, you know, more on time? I mean, these are all the things that we constantly have to wrestle with in accordance to the spirit. So it makes sense that the community of God's people would come together and say, how do we do this faithfully? And I, one scholar, Kent Yinger says, one person's obsession to follow the law is another person's faithfulness. And you kind of go, okay, so we can look at it and go stand in judgment and go, well, that's a little crazy, but I'm like, well, who's to say we don't do very similar things in our faith walk as well. Yeah. We, and we do. Yeah. Definitely do. So if all this is the case, what do we do with the passages where Jesus and the Pharisees seem to be fighting, seem to be just, not agreeing with one another, you know, what do we do with that? I mean, they seem so opposed to Jesus. Explain that to us. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good question. Cause I'm sure everybody listening at home is like, okay, you're saying that you want them as your neighbor, but I know Jesus called them hypocrites, you know, whitewashed tombs, all that stuff. Yeah. And then I'm, you know, which is true. And it's a very fair question. And, and everyone who wrestles with the scriptures has to wrestle with this. So a couple of things. There are times that the scriptures actually paint Pharisees in a positive light. So for example, Nicodemus, he's very curious about Jesus. Now, John, John has him going to, to Jesus at night. He's kind of a, he's a little afraid. Anytime John uses night language, you're like, that's not good. That's under darkness. But here's this guy who, you know, he is curious about Jesus. He goes and he has dialogue. There are stories in Luke and Acts where Jesus is dining with the Pharisees. You know, we kind of think of them as these like, opposed enemies that are constantly at war with each other, but that's not fair to all the evidence. You also have in Acts 15, a really beautiful moment where the, Jesus has died and been resurrected. The gospel is going out from Jerusalem. And now there's these big questions about how do Jew and Gentile worship together? And so Acts 15 is what we call the Jerusalem council, where they come together and say, okay, how are we going to, how are we going to do this? And there's Pharisees there that have converted to following Jesus. And so one, I would say, Make sure when you're studying the Pharisees, you look at all the texts, because there are some that, that seem to be neutral. There's some where Pharisees seem to be curious, and there's, of course, some where they're negative. The big one everybody goes to is you have Matthew 25, where Jesus is like, woe to you, Pharisees. You guys, you know, you strain out a camel and swallow a gnat or whatever the language is, and he calls them hypocrites. And so a couple of things. One, a hypocrite to us, the way we define hypocrisy in modern day terms is I say, don't do A, and then I go do A. <laughs> so that's hypocrisy, which is our definition. Right. Hypocrisy in the ancient world is more just you're a false teacher. So it's less that your behavior isn't in line with what you're saying, but really your teaching is just wrong from the jump. So really Jesus is calling them false teachers. So that's one. But secondly, in the first century, they have what's called invective language. And it's not stuff that we really use today. An invective language is designed to other people. So if you live in an honor shame culture, oftentimes you live in a group think. 
And what often gets missing from this conversation is how often the crowds are mentioned. And what you really see when you start to look at Jesus and the Pharisees is they both have a way of what they believe God's commands are trying to accomplish. The Pharisees aren't far from Jesus. In fact, what you often see is the strongest language are those is reserved for those most like you. And we know this if you have siblings. <laughs> we know the things that we've called our brothers and sisters when we're just like, I can't stand that idiot. And you're like, that's your brother. And you're like, well, yeah, he knows I call him an idiot. That's kind of how we talk to each other. And so it's not because the Pharisees and Jesus are diametrically opposed. It's because they are both leading the people of Israel. And now Jesus has a different way. And what constantly bothers the Pharisees is they're like, why does he teach with such authority? And he seems to have the authorities, the miracles and all these things on his side, and he's winning the crowds and the Pharisees are losing power. And so you really have these showdowns between the two of them. But what it really comes down to is not Judaism, bad Christianity, good. That's not what's happening here. We call it halakhic differences. Halakhic just means the way one should walk. And there's differences between how Jesus believes somebody should walk with God and how the Pharisees believe one should walk with God. And what's interesting is they're not far off. We often think they're so far opposed to each other. But at the end of the day, Jesus is ultimately going to say, you have to follow me. At the end of the day, you're, you need to follow me. And the Pharisees don't like that. And that's why. And so Jesus is, is using invective language to make sure the crowds understand, hey, you're going to end up making a choice between them and between me. And I don't want to leave any doubt as to which direction you're supposed to go. And so he uses rhetoric of his day. We don't, I don't think it's appropriate for pastors today to use the same kind of language because we don't live in an honor shame culture. We don't have that same kind of rhetoric today, but in the first century, it was very normal. It was very normal for you to be like, Hey, those such and such, those guys are, those guys are not good and don't follow them. And this is really Jesus appealing to the crowd saying, Hey, their interpretation is not ultimately the way to go. You're going to have to follow me. You're going to have to walk in my traditions, not theirs. And I, because of Jesus's great compassion for the crowds, I believe he uses very strong language because, because the Pharisees are so popular. I don't think he has to use as strong of language against Herod because Herod's not winning over common Jews. They're not thinking, oh, let's follow Herod. But they are thinking, let's continue to follow the ways of the Pharisees. And Jesus comes along and goes, yeah, you're going to have to make a choice here. And the choice is ultimately choose me. And because of the rhetoric in the first century, I think Jesus leaves no room for that conversation. But I don't think the Pharisees are leaving there thinking this guy really wounded us with his language. He hurt our feelings. I have to go to therapy now. They left thinking <laughs> we just got into a verbal spar with Jesus and we lost. Like, I think a lot of times they're probably like, well, that was pretty good. Like every time they try and trap him and Jesus just turns it back on them, I think they're probably all the time going, man, he's better at this than we are. Like he's just a better communicator than we are at the end of the day. But I, the crowds, I think, play a huge part in this. And so I would encourage anybody who's studying the gospels, go look up the word crowds and see how often they're mentioned and what a big part that is. Because if you're talking about trying to show people the way everlasting, the way to be faithful, the way to walk with God. I believe ultimately these showdowns between Jesus and the Pharisees come down to the crowds. And this is why Jesus has such harsh language because he doesn't want the crowds following the Pharisees to the detriment of not following Jesus. Um, and then of course, in the end, 
Jesus actually loses. If, I mean, that's the point is he loses. He gets put to death and the Pharisees aren't able to put him to death. They have to appeal to a higher power. So Rome ultimately puts Jesus to death, which is why his resurrection is what we call a vindication. He, the Pharisees win. You know what? This guy's a problem. He keeps beating us. The crowds are following him. We need to, you know, and so they, there's, he's creating all kinds of problem in Galilee. He goes up to Jerusalem. I always say Jesus is like the insurgent. I'm like, if you know, he's kind of a pain. Like I always joke, if you didn't know Jesus was actually the savior of the world. And you, if you just gave the Bible to somebody completely blind and he goes, and there's that famous scene where he goes into the synagogue and he kind of looks over his shoulder and he sees there's Pharisees there. And then he sees a man with a withered hand and he's like, Hey, I'm going to heal your hand on the Sabbath. And of course they're like, it's the Sabbath. Like it's all, you're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. And, you know, people go, well, yeah, but you should always heal on the Sabbath. And I'm like, but the guy's had a withered hand his whole life. What's the, you can wait one more day. Jesus knows he can wait one day. He's forcing the issue. And now I always say, if you're not, if you just read this story blindly, changing the names of the characters, you'd go, well, that guy's provoking people on purpose, which is what I believe Jesus is doing. This is exactly what he's doing. And which is why his ultimate death seems like such a defeat. It, you know, it's sort of like, hey, follow me. And then all of a sudden you go, well, your way ended up leading to death. And three days later, he goes, nah, my way leads to eternal life. That's a lot to take in. Yeah. So that's, that's a lot to take in. But I think it's really important that we that we have these conversations. I know really in our culture today, I don't think we know how to deal with groups of people without stereotyping them and saying that making it sound like everybody is alike in those groups. And it's not right. It's not fair to who they are. It's not just. And so I think we have to be careful because since that's sort of our tendency in our culture, uh, we have to be careful that we aren't doing that to this. Pharisees, because like you said, there were good Pharisees. It, it's not that all of them wanted to kill Jesus. There were some Pharisees that did. They were trying to get rid of him somehow. They got, had to figure out how to get rid of him. But it wasn't all Pharisees yep. getting together doing that. And if Nicodemus went to him, you just wonder how many others felt the same way, but they never risk going and talking to him. Yeah. I think it's good to kind of get that stereotype, typical language out of our, out of our vocabulary, really. Yeah. I and I would push it even further. I think one, not all Pharisees are bad Pharisees. In fact, I think, you know, most of them were pretty good guys. That's why Jesus is hanging out with them. I, there's always, they always, you know, in grad school, they ask you if Jesus were going to belong to the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots or the Pharisees, where would he most fit in? And after you read about these groups, you go, Pharisee. I mean, that's where Jesus would most fit in. And Paul himself was a Pharisee. And there's this really interesting moment in Acts near the end where he doesn't say, I was a Pharisee. He says, I am a Pharisee. Ego, I, me, ha, Pharisee. Like, and scholars are always debating, what does that mean? You know, why is he calling himself that? But you have this brilliant Pharisee in Paul who, who has an encounter with Jesus and begins following Jesus. And of course, we have all these amazing writings. So what happens is one, we kind of put Pharisees at the top and we stereotype all Pharisees. And then secondly, we use Pharisee, sometimes not even consciously as a fill-in for all Jews. And so many times we take this language against the Pharisees that don't apply to all of them, 
that is very hyperbolic because it's a first century text. And then we just kind of say, oh, well, that's that's what Jewish people are like, which is completely unfair and a gross stereotype that has no place in Christendom or with those who are taking the Bible seriously. And so, okay, I think you're exactly right. We have to be very careful with these texts and how we use them and the conclusions we make about people with them. Absolutely. And so if, if you were just to give two or three things you want to leave with people, what would that be? So the first one is, Kay and I know this. We, you go to seminary and you read books that are ancient. You read books that are old and then you read books that are new and there's a whole mix. And I, this is really an appeal to people. There is so much scholarship that came out around the time of the Holocaust out of Germany that continues to cast a very long shadow over New Testament scholarship. And I, anybody who understands what happened during the Holocaust understands just how anti-Semitic that teaching is. And you know, you have, you have scholars that would say Jesus wasn't even Jewish. You know, he never, he stopped being Jewish when he became the savior of the world. First of all, that's not true. And secondly, that's just, it's teaching something to people that is, it's, it's blasphemy. I mean, it's, it's, it's not to the level, but it's, you have to be careful with what you're reading. So my encouragement people would be is, if you have no contact, if you don't have a Jewish friend, if you don't have Jewish scholars on your bookshelf, and you're talking about Pharisees or Jewish people or the Jewish religion, but you haven't bothered to run it by somebody who might have a little bit more information, I would encourage you to humbly submit to some Jewish scholars, to some to some brilliant, Amy Jill Levine and so many others who are in conversations with Christians and go, hey, if I preach this in my church, if I taught this at my Bible study and there was a Jewish person in the room, would I stand by what I'm saying? Do I really, do, am I sure that I'm right about what I'm saying? So that's what I'd say is be really, really careful. The other thing is, I think we have to stop using the term Pharisee to insult people today. I just think it's completely unfair. You know, I always joke, like one of my seminary professors always says, liberal just means left of me. And Pharisee really just means someone who's too straight, you know, this killjoy, whatever. And you know, what it does is it perpetuates stereotypes about Pharisees and makes us not very good with the Bible, but also it's just harmful. I mean, it, it's, it doesn't serve anyone. And if anything, and the more I learn about the Pharisees, the more I go, yeah, if I'm being honest in these stories with Jesus, I understand. I understand the Pharisees a little bit better now. Do I think ultimately they have to submit themselves to Jesus? Of course I do. Do I think they were in the wrong? Yeah, of course I do. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. Of course I think that. But when you're teaching these passages, what I'd encourage you to do is put on the sandals of the Pharisees and, and try and imagine that world where you're going, hey, you've spent your whole life trying to be faithful. And then Jesus comes along and goes, hey, you, you're missing some big ideas, mainly me. <laughs> I'm the Messiah. Like you're, You need to understand that I'm the Messiah and how difficult that would be. You know, I think we always have this modern arrogance that we think if Jesus walked into the room, we'd immediately like him, we'd run to him. And, you know, I think because of the Holy Spirit and the work of the resurrection of life, that's probably true. But to have deep empathy for a first century Jewish person who's expecting, I always say they're expecting CrossFit David to show up and be the Messiah and to overthrow Rome. And instead you have meek and mild Jesus who's born in a manger to a no-name gal in a no-name town. And he's saying, hey guys, I'm God's son. You can understand why faithful Jewish people would go, that guy's odd. And so I would just encourage deeper empathy and deeper understanding 
as you're preaching these texts. Um, and then, and then finally, I think this is true, whether you're teaching on the Pharisees, whether you're teaching on, you know, Moses, anything you're teaching, the way we speak about people, it goes back to your point, Kay, about stereotypes and all of that. We have to be a lot more gentle in the way we talk about people. Um, I think so many times, you know, I, I think of an example, and this is, this is a gal that I was teaching how to teach the Bible and she was really early in her studies. And so I'm not going to name names and I know she didn't mean anything by it, but she wanted to teach the story about Herod, uh, being, being, in, you know, basically the young girl dancing for him and then him saying, you can have whatever you want. And of course his, you know, his wife asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter and this young young woman who wanted to teach that passage goes, "Is it okay if I say and that little slut killed John the Baptist?" And I mean, I I mean, I was as horrified as the look on your face just now. And I just said to her, "I said, do you think she had a choice? Do you do you really think a young girl understood what was happening? Do you think that there are women in the room who have made choices in their past about their behavior that that they regret that people have called them that name and they have felt that way? I mean, it was sort of a and, and I could see as we began talking that she was going, oh, okay, yeah, I wasn't thinking from that perspective. You know, I was thinking of it as a defender of John the Baptist. And I thought, well, everyone in the room comes with a different story. The people you're teaching the Bible to, the people you are teaching in small groups, the people, your children that you're learning, your, your nieces and nephews, your grandkids, everybody that you're discipling, they're all coming with their own unique stories, their own unique perspectives. And whether it's Pharisees, whether it's young girls who dance for Herod, whether it's Esther, whether it's Ruth, whether it's whoever, this is a call for a more sensitive, more gentle, and more empathetic way of teaching the scriptures because you just never know what people are coming in with. And the empathy that you show these religious people who got it wrong may just be what somebody in that audience needs to hear that day because they may be a religious person who's gotten it wrong and wants to get it right. And they need to know that the Christianity and our churches are safe places for people to go, you know, I used to teach the Bible this one way and I'm beginning to think it wasn't right. And I'm beginning to see how Jesus is different. And now I want to change. And is Nicodemus safe in our churches? Is Joseph of Arimathea safe in our churches? And is there a place for people um, to come in and to really encounter Jesus and encounter the people of the scriptures in a way that's beautiful and honoring of both the Lord and the humans that are in our audiences? Yeah, I love that. I love that last point that you're making there because I don't think all of our churches are particularly welcoming to people who have come from all kinds of background and they just have questions. And we feel very threatened by questions. And I don't think all of the Pharisees' questions to Jesus were meant to be threatening in any way. Yeah, that's right. Trying to understand him. Sometimes because of the passages that say some of them were trying to get rid of him or something, we sort of color all of the Pharisees as they're trying to trap him. And sometimes they were. Sometimes sure. scripture says that we're trying to trap him. But not all of those questions were illegitimate questions. I mean, some of them were really good questions. Yeah. And, and we need to be gracious to people who have questions and not stereotype them in some way that would make them uncomfortable in our churches. Yeah. One of the values of St. Jude is we say we reward curiosity. We, you know, I can't tell you how many adults I spend time with who, when they were younger, had questions, had legitimate questions. And we're either punished, shunned, or dismissed. And, you know, I, you know, I, 
I think Christian, we're betting our lives on this. Like, if you can't question this, what are we doing? And often it's because the person in charge maybe has their own insecurities or fears or whatever, but to welcome questioning, to welcome doubt, to welcome curiosity, I think speaks of Jesus is going to withstand whatever scrutiny we put up against him. You you can spend your whole life being a skeptic of Jesus. And I promise at the end of it, you're still going to find out he's the Lord. And so we don't have to defend him. I mean, his, his track record's perfect. You're going to find out he might just be greater than you ever thought if you have questions of him. But, you know, I think about, you know, there's, there's what happens in the scripture, but I always think about what happens between those stories, right? So you think about these Pharisees, they come and they're arguing with Jesus. And you imagine they go home and they're kind of scratching their head. Maybe their wife and their children are like, what's bothering you? And he's like, you know, that guy, Jesus, who's kind of a pain. And they're like, yeah. And he's like, you know, his answer was pretty good. You know, I mean, and, and I don't really know that I think he's the son of God, but that guy couldn't walk and now he can walk and well, goodness. Like, and you know, and that's, this is how, I mean, this is how faith works. It's so rarely, you know, you have this amazing story of Paul on the road, you know, and all of a sudden Jesus comes and the scales fall up and that's amazing. But if we're being honest, not all of us have those kinds of stories. And instead we have stories where we, we labor and we ask questions and we wonder and we, and we go, do I really think a dead man came back to life? That sounds kind of crazy. So for Jesus to show up on the scene and go, no, I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. And he doesn't look like what you're expecting the son of God to look like. Of course you have questions. Of course you have doubts. And, you know, all of us are like, well, if I had seen those miracles, I would have believed. And I'm like, I don't know, guys, we see miracles today and I still don't, I'm, I can still be skeptical of things. And so I think you're absolutely right, Kay, that if, if we can't, as the people of God who are betting our lives on this great truth, that there's a Trinitarian God who loves us, that the son came and died for our sins, rose again three days later, and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. If we are scared that people are going to question that, then I think, frankly, we need to do more homework and we need to do more study and we need to encourage those people. And maybe their questions are questions that maybe we were just too scared to ask. And so I think we absolutely should be students of the word. We should be willing to change our minds about things. We should be the kind of people that when we do change our mind, we go, hey, I used to teach it this way and I don't anymore. And here's why I've changed my mind. And we have got to be people that understand that that what we believe our faith will hold up under scrutiny. It doesn't mean we won't change our mind about things, but the essentials of our faith, those are rock solid. And if they're not, that's not the fault of the person asking the questions. That's because you might need to spend a little bit more time with the Lord and his word, with his spirit and with his people. And so I, I'm with you 100%. Okay. And so some of you listening right now are not convinced that I'm right about the Pharisees. I know that. <laughs> and so great. Go read Kent Yinger's book on the Pharisees. Go read Amy Gillivine's stuff on the Pharisees. Go read Scott McKnight's going to put out a book soon on the Pharisees. Don't trust me, but be curious. Go find out. Go read some stuff on this. I think you'll be surprised by what you find. Right. And if nothing else, right now, you should not be real sure about what you've known in the past. So don't keep teaching that. Wait until you've learned a little bit more. If you don't want to believe Nika then do some, you know, do some, do some research, learn, learn more about it and be careful with your words when you talk about the Pharisees. Yeah. I think that's great. Kay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was really helpful. And I hope that Pharisees make good neighbors will <laughs> encourage many, many people out there to watch and listen and 
really just to be more careful. And maybe for some of you, this has just shown you that, you know, you need to, you need to dig into some new uh, material. Not that the truth is new. It's, it's that people have studied more about the culture, more about how people, as you were talking about, talk to each other in that day, the literature, how they, how they communicated and, and been able to understand more about those things. And so it's really helpful. And then archeology, span of course, is constantly coming up with new things that people 30 or 40 years ago were, did not know at all. And so look, look at some newer um, material. If you're, if you're doing any kind of teaching, it, it will be worth your while. So thank you, Nika, for bringing up this very important topic. The, the Pharisees are so ingrained into the Gospels. You really can't go through the Gospels without encountering the Pharisees. So it's too big a part to just not know, I think. So. Yeah. Totally agree. It's absolutely right. So hopefully this will get a million views and hopefully this will be a very popular video. Right. So share it with your friends. Let people learn about the Pharisees. I promise I'm not making this stuff up. So yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Nika. And we hope that all of you out there will look at more of our resources. We've got many, many videos and most of them are in podcast form as well. So just go to beyondordinarywomen.org and do some browsing. And if you are a Bible teacher, we have a whole section on teaching the Bible that might be helpful to you as well. So we just hope that you'll stay with us and go to our website, look around, maybe sign up for our newsletter so that you get notified when these kinds of resources pop up. Love it. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Beyond Ordinary Women podcast. You can find more podcast episodes and resources for women in leadership by going to beyondordinarywomen.org. This podcast is produced by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministry. Our production team includes Evelyn Babcock, Kay Daigle, Deborah Herring, and Sharifa Stevens. Theme music, Back in Stride by Don Miller, used courtesy of Christine Miller.